wave. Don't like to. Go on, wave. Shall I? They expect it, don't they? Lovely lads and so natural. I mean, adoration hasn't gone to their heads one jot, has it? You know what I mean, success. Just so natural. And still the same as they was before they was. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Mark Lewison. I'm Eric Tarras. Beatles, naked. represents for you loving the Beatles, you know, whether it's a clip of film or an audio piece or their music, obviously. I mean, okay, one that comes to mind for me is Hey Jude on TV on Frost on Sunday. And I love it because I love the song. It's true that, you know, popular music never had a finer moment. I love the video, you know, of of them, the four of them there. They just look great. You know, it's such a fantastic song and you've got that whole audience participation um, and it just looks so real and people who sort of just so happy to be there and it's people of many colours and it was always just a great 
great video and tied in with that for me is you know i watched it with my parents and i remember my dad saying oh, it's a catchy song um so just great memories for me and that's one of the things that just jumps to mind when i talk about my love for the beatles of all things beatles is that is it just like a happy memory or is that like that's the thing it's one of the things i i would never with the beatles ever say there's one thing right like one favorite record or anything like that but it, it's up there it's something that just comes to mind now obviously if i think more about it i'll dig out other things but that's one that comes to mind it's at the front of my mind the one that i always go back to when people ask me because i like all of us in this room, at one point or another, you meet somebody or they hear what you do and they say, okay, well, what's your favorite song or what's your favorite moment or whatever? I, I've always thought the big moment for me, besides watching the Ed Sullivan show with my my, fam, with my sister in 1964, the first one, which had great impact and it set off kind of a fuse, the, the moment for me really is sitting in the Oriental Theater in Mattapan Square in 1965, in the summer, uh, my good friend, lifelong friend Rob Kelly remembers this very well because we were allowed to go with the big kids. So our older sisters were four or five years older than us, six years older in some cases. And, and, and we sat next to the girls, you know, the girls were in a line, we were sitting at the end, and it was a double feature of Hard Day's Night and Help. And there is that moment in help. The Beatles walk up to four different doors, and you know, there's the, the two little old ladies and the babushkas across the street. Wave, go on, wave. You know, I suppose they expect it, don't they? And that moment when they open the door and all walk in, and the shot changes to one big room. I will never forget that. All I wanted was three friends like that. And I was like, yes, look at that. You know, there it's an it's a playroom. That's really interesting as well because, you know, how many kids or even teenagers were wishing that the Beatles were their friends? You know, we talk about the girls lusting after them, but just that wanting them to be your friends. I remember definitely it was 1963. I was four years old. This would be mostly around the time of She Loves You or just after that, and just lying in bed and fantasizing that. I was hanging out with the Beatles, basically. That wasn't wouldn't have been the term I'd have used then, but that you know they were my pals, and I was just going around with them. Also, in America, there was you know I forget sometimes how young I really was as a Beatles fan, and a line of reality would be regularly blurred for those of us on the real bottom tier of the first generation Beatles fans, and those are that is because by September, you know uh, of sixty five. We have those cartoons. So the Beatles are not only on record, they're on the, the predictably every Saturday morning, there's a version of the Beatles. And it, it, you kind of, you know, they had sort of these uh, Al Brodax filtered personalities that some ra writer ran around and sort of followed them and, and supposedly made notes and d developed these the character lines. But rock and roll music was not on 24-7, really. There were certain shows that really, you know, there was general music on all day long, which would have a Frank Sinatra record next to a Beatles record next to uh, Love is Blue by what, the Paul Marriott Orchestra or whatever. Um, but there were shows that were, that were just, you know, rock and roll, and one of them was Bruce Bradley at night or whatever. And so I, I was, after the Beatles Ed Sullivan show, I was listening to that and found out from the big kids, you know, where do you hear more of this on your transistor? 
But none of those groups had the exposure of the Beatles. None of them, they might show up on Hollywood Palace, they might show up on Ed Sullivan, but you did not get a cartoon series. So all of a sudden, your head, as you're a little kid, did I see the Beatles actually say this or do this? Or, or, or was that the cartoon? Or, but they were so part of our life. Talk to anyone my age who's a musician, and they all say the same thing, that us little kids were, were indoctrinated into the Beatles in a much more immersive fashion than the older kids, because the older kids wouldn't watch the cartoons. And if you watched the cartoons, you didn't just get the hit singles. You got every track. I mean, there's a bloody cartoon for Tomorrow Never Knows. Imagine that's like I say that's the reason I'm the way I am today. I well you know watching the Aztecs dancing. Yeah, of course this makes sense. The Beatles are you know they fall through a hole and does Aztecs, you know. So I mean, I think that immersiveness, they became like your friends, even though they weren't. You felt like you knew these people that you could never possibly know. Before we recorded this, Richard said to me, "Think of some reason, just any reason." that you can easily enunciate why you love the Beatles or something about what they did that you love. You've both come up with formative ones, kind of, um, that you remember from childhood, but mine is mine is just more of now, and it isn't about childhood memories or anything. We have the opportunity now with YouTube, and some of us have good collections as well, good archives, uh, and I certainly do, of Beatles footage. And you look at any of it, and I mean any of it, uh, from any time, and I do mean any time. And what you see, and it could be something you've never seen before, and it becomes another, yet another layer of reasons to absolutely be totally consumed with passion and admiration for what you see. And so outside, in out of nowhere, and it could have been any one of a, a million and a half, 28 million and a half thoughts, about a moment in the Beatles' career, I suddenly thought of November 67 when the Beatles need to finish mag- making Magical Mystery Tour and this short of a bit of film. I think it was the 3rd of November. And um, they go over to Sunny Heights to Ringo's house and uh, they've got a guy with a camera there. And they, they only need to wild track it because they've, it's, to, it's to be played to Blue Jay Way. So they just need visuals. They don't need sound. And... Um, they just have to fill some camera time in Ringo's back garden and they play around with the ball and John plays this fantastic, huge, white, uh, ornamental cello that's got no actual strings on it. And they run around and you just see them. The thing about the Beatles is anytime you see them being themselves, it's fascinating. So you can dive into any one thing they ever did and just be utterly consumed with how amazing it is because who they are is so interesting. So they run around the garden and then they, because it's the 3rd of November, there's fireworks on sale in British sweet shops. And um, because Guy Fawkes night on the 5th, remember, remember the 5th of November. So they've got fireworks. So, So they set off some fireworks and then run up the steps like, like children and um, but it's not that aspect of it that I like it's just them being themselves so there is one of an infinite number of examples of them being themselves that, that is just you just have to watch it and you can watch it any number of times it, it does not bore with repeated viewing where's your entry point there was a lot of good entertainment on in 1963 I'm sure you watch TV with your parents all the time do you have any recollection 
of what it was about seeing. I'm, I'm assuming this was a sight and not a sound thing, Mark. No, it was a sound. It was a sound. The Beatles just came in. They came in a, in in a wave, didn't they? You you heard them and you thought, "What's that?" And then you saw a picture of them. You went, "Wow, they look interesting." And then you you might be fortunate enough to hear them speak in radio or television, and it's so, "Oh, they're so interesting." And then you read something in the paper, and everything they did was interesting. It was just constant. But it was interesting is is insufficient a word for it. It was absolutely. Um, it was like nectar. Richard, same for you, sound first as opposed to pictures? Both. She Loves You, I'm pretty sure, was the thing that ignited my love of the Beatles, or immediate fascination, four and a half years old. And at the same time, they were on TV, without a doubt. I, I suspect I did see them on Sunday night at the London Palladium. I remember my dad getting me out of bed and saying the Beatles are on TV, but I don't know it was that show, and I don't have any direct recollection of it. But, you know, is every chance I would have seen that and probably the Royal Variety again, I don't remember. But I do remember my brother saying to me, that's the Beatles when they started. And it was some other guy that I've got no doubt. And in Mark's book, you know, when he sort of researched it and it came out that it was first shown in the London area in late 63. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm absolutely sure I saw that. That I have direct recall. Well, see, what's interesting to me is is we experienced it so differently than you lot, and I, I, I've always wondered, did it hit you guys like the tsunami that it hit here? And I was completely, I'm sure, obviously, uh, I want to, I want to hold your hand was a number one record. So before they, you know, before they were on the Ed Sullivan show, I was completely unaware of it. You know, I had, I had not heard it. You know, at least if I had heard it, it didn't stick in my memory. It's hard for me to analyze because I was only as I say, you know, um, four and a half years old. So uh, all I remember is that I was just obsessed with She Loves You. We went overseas and uh, we were in our car traveling in Europe and the whole two weeks I was singing She Loves You. <laughs> Great endurance by your parents. Yeah, really. By January of 64, I was in school and my first teacher, Mrs. McGee, used to stand me on her desk and I would sing She Loves You to the class. So your parents and the pupils in that class could have all been in a support group together. It must have been at least as charming as Jimmy Osmond. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, 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 yeah. You think you've lost your love? Well, I saw her yesterday. Yeah. It's you she's thinking of. You know you should be glad. 
kind of reliving the white album for quite a long time now it's been enhanced by the brilliant box set that giles martin has done yeah. and it's just like how many points in this are there that you could actually enter and completely love what you're hearing what you're seeing any any aspect of it the beatles any single point you look at or hear you just think ah oh, that's why i love them and it's 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 infinite it's it. on, on that one box set alone, you could probably count 10,000. I mean, it's just like that guitar note, that harmony line, that idea to write that song, that little bit that they put in there, just the audacity and the, the speed of it all. It's just like there isn't a single thing. To know them more is to love them more. So getting a box set of any time or, or getting a cache of photographs or something on YouTube or any time you, you, you get... And it doesn't always have to be new either. You can... Something that has been around forever and you watch it for the umpteenth time, you just think, oh, yeah, that's it. I'm glad you came back to that because you alluded to that facet earlier about the Beatles, you know, that, as you said, you can dive in at any point and love it and love them and investigate it and you know be consumed with it and it's absolutely true and it's a fantastic thing to have you have to be a person of passion which we all are and many you know the people out there are and i love that passion well they reached out and touched people in the world who could be receptive to that and that is a lot of people and that's why it's still so many people after 50 years because because it's still sustained you just you listen now to a recording made 50 years ago and and it just knocks you over with its audacity with its brilliance with its authenticity with its honesty with every single attribute you could ever wish for there's nothing else like it on the planet i agree well yeah for us anyway absolutely i think nothing else like it on the planet full stop for us we get it we're we're the lucky ones there are some who don't and i feel sorry for them because they're missing something they're missing an enrichment that's ultimately what the beatles give all of us constantly is an enrichment in our lives and Oh, I don't remember life without them because it's 55 years since I do remember them and I'm, and I'm now 60. So nothing else really. But but the point is, I'm not. it's not an old thing. I'm connected to it. It's a present thing. And that's a key difference. It's not like I'm remembering the past by touching, tapping into the Beatles. They're enriching my now. Yeah. And they're enriching my tomorrow. And that's for sure until I die. I mean, it's just, it's just, and it's a great, great, great thing to have this in your life because it's good for the soul. Yeah, absolutely it is in good times and bad times. I mean, right now, you know, I, I just think it is, it's so uplifting to have this White Album package come in. And for me, as I said before, it's just like new material, even though we know a lot of the song material, but it, it was like a new gift. And to have it at this time, it is really uplifting. And that's what they've always been. You know, for me, whenever I come back to the same thought with things, I'm kind of convinced, okay, that's where it's at. And however much music I visit, you know, all different artists, styles, you name it, different eras, 
whenever I hear Beatles again, you know, it's like, oh, God, yeah. You know, the best. Just love it. It's just, and it's not a familiarity thing. It's just the sheer quality and those person. And that's the other thing. Right, it's not just the music, it's it's uh, or just the films. It it's those personalities. Everything works. I don't just want to talk about the music. I mean, just any picture of the Beatles, any clip of the Beatles, any piece of paper that embodies something about the Beatles is interesting. It's just like it's just there is no, nothing about this lot, these these four guys and the world they populated that is ever uninteresting or dull or boring. Nothing. Apparently, this, this is shocking to me, considering. You know, Mark's a couple of years older than me. And as we know, Richard, you'll always be nine months older than me. I'm nine months older than him. Oh, I felt more like him than me. You'll both be nine months apart from me. It's interesting to me that as the youngest one here, I'm the only one that appears to have memories before the Beatles came into their life. No, you know. Oh, okay. All right. I remember life. I remember things, but I don't remember life. I remember absolutely loving the twist. And it was actually Let's Twist Again, which in... Britain was a hit in 62. I think it was the year after the US. And that was my first musical obsession before the Beatles was The Twist and Chubby Checker. I remember starting school before the Beatles. I remember I started school January 63 and when they were in Scotland and, and no one knew who they were. But that, that wasn't what I meant. I meant that I cognitive... Uh, I see what you're saying. Identification with anything, passions. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. One of the reasons I love the Beatles so much was how they entered. I have two memories before the Beatles, distinct ones. One was the elevation of Pope Paul VI. <laughs> Coming really? from a very Catholic family where I had priests and nuns and everything. I really remember the watching it on TV. You had priests and nuns and everything. And everything, everything. Right. I, that, I'm going to let your imagination run wild. I showed I showed Mark my, my ticket from going to see the Pope because I had special a special pass to go see the Pope when he came to Boston on the stage and stuff. But besides that, the other thing I remember distinctly was my, my mother's 39th birthday, which was November 22nd, 1963. And I remember everything about that day. Wow. Your mom's birthday, that must have been very special because a lot of people do remember that date. Uh, yeah, some shit happened that day. And I can tell you the weather, man. It was beautiful, not a cloud in the sky. It was warm. It was a Friday. I was excited because my mom was getting her hair done. And I remember the, the hairdresser lady had like a hairdresser place in her house, you know, because, you know, Ringo would eventually want to buy one someday, a hairdresser or two. In the Redditch area. Uh, yes, in the Redditch. And I remember distinctly, all of a sudden, the adults were crying. And I was terrified. So why do I love the Beatles? Well, <clears throat> it seemed, Mark and I were talking about this, it seemed like years that there was a Paul, especially here in Boston, because, you know, Kennedy was born here. You know, he was from here. Oh, sorry, when you said a Paul, I think you meant Paul McCartney. Paul over the, not, not, a, not, a, not a less Paul, right. or not a, which would be good for the Beatles, according to George Harrison. Um, no, it was, there was this sense of doom. You, you, I really remember it as a child and watching the news of the Kennedy assassination was bizarre as a child because they would show him smiling and waving. And as a kid, you're like, oh, he's okay again. And then the next thing that would cut in the news film was people crying at the hospital. Oh, no, he's dead again. There was this feeling that even permeated children. 
And then all of a sudden that lifted. Well, the Beatles arrived in New York today and advanced almost to the Hudson. The four English musical stars with their pudding bowl haircuts were greeted by about 4,000 shrieking teenagers at Kennedy Airport and mobbed by another large group of juveniles when they got to the Plaza Hotel. All day long, some local disc jockeys had been encouraging truancy with repeated announcements of the Beatles' travel plans, flight number, and estimated time of arrival. British journalists tell us that the record company had 16 press agents handling the arrival, but we wouldn't know much about that. However, like a good little news organization, we sent three camera crews to stand among the shrieking youngsters and record the sights and sounds for posterity. Our film crews acquitted themselves with customary skill and ingenuity. The pictures were very good, but someone asked what the fuss was about, and we found we had no answer. So, good night for NBC News. All of that assassination stuff went away on one night, and everything was happy. People were happy again. Was that when Topo Gigio was on the Ed Sullivan show? When he kissed Eddie. <laughs> good night, Eddie. Because, you know, Mark really likes my impression, of, by the way. Well, I'm glad he does. Not of Topo Gigio. He likes, he likes my impression of, of, of uh, Ed Sullivan. You know, right now in our studio, <laughs> we have the great... Mark, Mark Lewis and stand up, stand up and take a bow. Let's hear it, let's hear it. Let's hear it for him. <laughs> so, uh, but Topo Gigio, our little Italian mouse friend. That's actually really good, Eric. I, I, are you, 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 you're taking the piss, right? No, I, you got a hidden talent. <laughs> here, I man. felt I sure that Mr. Ed had just walked into the room. Well, these newspaper men and photographers agree with me. You haven't right. seen yeah. anything. Yeah, all right. I said, I said it was good, Eric, but you know. Oh, yeah. well, see, I always overdo it, don't I? Anyway, uh, but that, that was so central and important. And once again, the Beatles were always my safe place. They were always a place to be happy, you know. Um, I have this, this my, my dear, dear, dear grandmother passed away right as Beatle tickets were going on sale for Suffolk Towns. And I will never, you know, I, I remember being so depressed about my grandmother dying. And what was it that made me happy? A paperback writer or something like that. It was getting the record. You just sort of listen, you know, you could, you could just drop into the Beatles and it would take everything away, anything bad. So I think more that is the answer to your, you know, initial question. You know, what do you love? It's that. And, you know, Mark, you were saying, you know, no scrap of paper, you know, is uninteresting when it comes to them. I see this giant puzzle that I'm making. And it's mostly film and audio, not so much paperwork. But I feel if there's just enough pieces in that puzzle, I'm going to get a cosmic message. <laughs> you know, that's it might slip you the answer. It it might. It might it's better than being in the helicopter, you know. I think I'd rather be in the helicopter with John and the Maharishi. That would be quite interesting. People ask me a lot why I spend so much time doing this and you know, and what it's like. They you know, people say, surely everything has been discovered. But these are people who don't know of what they speak, right? I mean, we it doesn't matter what people say. People have always said there will always be people saying things. You either get it or you don't get it. The thing about um, the Beatles being the great salve for you is obviously central to you and, and, and everything you've done since. Um, but that in itself could be said of somebody else and their love for the Rolling Stones or somebody else and their love for the Kings. But there is something that the Beatles have that no other act has ever had, which is that everything about it is genuinely 
interesting. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, they, you know, you don't necessarily want to watch endless films of the Stones, much as I love the Stones and and I love watching their TV stuff. The Beatles had something. They had something that transcended all of this, and I don't, I, I use that word advisedly because I don't want to get into that kind of aspect of it, or that's not where I, I want to go. But quite simply, the Beatles just had very clearly something unbelievable about what they were doing and it happens from the time that they're schoolboys and it's when we didn't know who they were and it was going all the way through they they just had this it's enough to make you want to believe in god and and i speak as an atheist but it's enough to want to make you believe in god because it's just like well this is all unbelievable. How can this still be so interesting? They're just guys. They're just guys from Liverpool. I know where they come from. I know where I've been to their schools. I've been to their houses. I know the environment they grew up in. I recognise the country that they were living in because I lived in it too. Uh, and I, I recognise, obviously, that there are people in life who are gifted, who are talented, who are special, who write, think differently and, and create the art that we need. Um, but the Beatles just had it in such a concentration in a way that isn't diminishing by an iota, which is a whole phenomenon in itself. So why is this not even diminishing? And it's just like, yeah, if I had to believe in something, I would believe in it because of the Beatles. But as it happens, I don't. I just think it was just, I think it was just one of those moments. It has to happen through sheer probability that there will come a time in life when the right people did the right things at the right time for all the right reasons, just as you would always want it. And it's not so much that they ever left a message because they didn't. They didn't leave any messages at all. They just were themselves. But what they were whilst being themselves is something that connects. And it connects to me so profoundly that I can easily do 30 years on a trilogy. I mean, people who don't know me or don't understand the Beatles say, surely you get bored. You must be get bored right about. They obviously don't get it. You can't get bored with the Beatles. It's as simple as that. You cannot get bored with the Beatles. No, you can't. But it's interesting to me that you think or you – well, uh, and we come at this from different angles mm. because you are an atheist and I am a, a complete spiritualist. Yeah. So I see the – one of my early psychic instructors told me a long, long time ago that the Beatles were angels or that which we think of as angels uh, in certain – that they came here – they were anointed. That's not that they're – special beings from another planet, but that there was there is no accident, as Duchamp would say, and that it all came together. They were anointed. They suffered and uh, for it. Obviously, two of them, you know, were attacked physically. One died from it. One died as a result of it. But what they've left behind is not just messages, but uh, instructions and a symbol for how to be or an, uh, a roadmap to me. I don't think they left any messages or any instructions. It didn't have to be intentional at all. But I don't see them either, other than a code for living in that, not to copy everything they did, but simply to tune in to, to what everything that it was and let that be a good way to live. That was a convenient choice of words. What? A good <laughs> way to in. live? No, tune in. Um, no, I, but you see, what I'm thinking is, is, you know, when I think of the Beatles, I think of that scene in um, The Life of Brian, where, you know, Brian of Nazareth is standing up there just kind of vamping and, 
you've got to figure it out for yourselves. Yes, yes. And tell us more. Yes, yes. And and that to me is really that that's the Beatle moment of that movie in a sense is that I I don't think they were like sitting there planning it. Well, you know, if we do this, John and Paul. Well, and, they, obviously they were not. No, of course not. But mm. but my feeling is is that inadvertently that's kind of for people like me kind yeah. of what happened. But isn't it subjective though? I mean, look. Obviously, you know, I agree with you about, you know, loving the Beatles and about nothing else compares to that. But isn't that still subjective? I mean, there'll be a Stones fan who will absolutely, or a Dylan fan or whoever fan, yes. will argue the point and say, no, I di just categorically disagree. I as long as there are human beings on the planet, there'll be someone to argue the point about something. It does appear to be subjective and it is subjective. I recognise that. And yet there is a truth to it. There is absolutely a truth that the Beatles in every level are much more interesting than anybody else. And that's not just because I like their records. It's just because it is. I think maybe I'll tussle over the word interesting because they are interesting. I think that is where it becomes subjective, particularly interest is a subjective thing. So maybe it's a different word. Yes, yes, yeah, probably. Yeah, okay. See if I can come up with another word. Yeah. No, I take the point. I take the point you're making, but even if I'm not finding the right word, it is still what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I, I get yeah. it, obviously. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. How and why, I mean, we could stray into psychic circles, but you'd, Interesting, you'd, you'd, leave, you'd leave me behind, but it's not worth saying. No, it's and I, I don't say these things to try to... Um, you know, I, I believe in coexistence of philosophies. As yeah. a matter of fact, I encourage, you know, people that disagree or have different points of view to always share them. I, I don't say these things in any way to convert or yes. try to, you know, say, well, I've got the answer. And, you know, it's just my, my personal experience is that and that I've found, you know, I went to art school because Stuart and John went to art school. That There's no, there's absolutely, that's a fact. You know, I did yoga because... I heard the word from George Harrison. I mean, that's a fact. Mm. So, I mean, whether they intended that doesn't really matter. That doesn't enter the equation. It was an inspiration. Yes, yes, and this is Do it. Do you think, though, there's a different layer for you? Was there anything about the Beatles being English and, you know, not being in England, that it's not part of your culture and it's that kind of slightly unattainable thing? Or it's that, just as maybe for us, you know, there was, for a lot of Brits the glitziness of Hollywood, you know, where you'd have an American actor in a British film of the 50s and 60s to add a bit of Hollywood glitz. Was there that layer for you as well, that there's something different? They're not oh, from here. completely. Because, uh, you know, any disenfranchised kid, I mean, I think you'd have a, a, a similar discussion with Bowie fans. You know, every real serious Bowie person I ever knew felt disenfranchised at some point in their life and that Bowie was our hero he's just he is the hero of the disenfranchised he's like anything went it didn't matter everything was w water off the duck's back so he was like you know the disenfranchised guy but when it came to the Beatles who was who were really our first in America uh really cool English like the idea of swinging London and um instantly after the Beatles were on TV, and I do mean instantly, even little kids like me were fascinated by their, their speaking voices. Because, you know, when we heard them sing, it sounded like, you know, Bobby V or somebody else. You know, we can understand every word. And then all of a sudden they're talking, you know, like this and all. And you're like, wow, wow, listen to that. And girls loved it. Uh, I remember, you know, playing uh, Beatles. We, we used to play Beatles. 
right? So I'd go to my friend Kenneth Sand's house across the street, and we'd put on a Beatle record. We'd mime with tennis rackets or, you know. And, you know, there's that picture, Richard, I sent you where I'm wearing my white Beatles wig, you know, which I look yeah. more like one of the hullabaloos. But you'll notice I'm holding my little phony guitar left-handed because I was damned if I wasn't going to play goddamn Paul McCartney in my own house. Did you play it left-handed? Uh, well, we all knew that Paul held, we didn't, if consciously we didn't know what the difference was, I think we all thought it was a visual thing, you know, because John and Paul could be mirrors. And we, we knew that looked different than what we'd seen on TV. Well, there's a photo of me from, I think, December 63 with a, a plastic, you know, toy guitar. And I'm absolutely holding it up high like Lennon. Oh, yeah. Without that, was the the only person I'd ever seen play a guitar myself, you know, along with George Harrison. Yeah, we all kind of emulated what we saw, but but at that moment, yeah, that's all we wanted to be because it seemed not just uh, exotic, but think about it: the Beatles were the first English guys we got to know. They were always witty. They always had an in joke going. Uh, girls loved them. They always were dressed beautifully. Um, and they seem to be having a really good time. What the hell else do you want in life? You know, and it's kind of like, so we're little kids going, yeah, Jesus Christ, I couldn't wait to get to London. You know, it took me 18 years, but... Um, we all live like that in London in those days. I, I knew that. I knew that for a fact. Especially you, Mr. Lewis. <laughs> Was it Jagger said that, you know, well, on a Friday night, all Englishmen go down a pub and then come back and dress in women's clothes? <laughs> <laughs> Bloody <laughs> I want to come back to something you say because not not to pick holes in it, but just to see it from my point to pick of view, holes in it. which is that you said about the, the importance of the Beatles to the disenfranchised. And I don't doubt. I mean, obviously, everything you said was well, mostly Bowie. But yeah, uh, and Bowie. Uh, you mentioned Bowie as an example of of how people can reach out to the disenfranchised. The thing about the Beatles is they reached out to the franchised as well as the disenfranchised. Oh, yes, the Beatles did. And the, that is unbelievable about the Beatles was their appeal. I mean, it became cool in rock and roll, obviously, for reasons that we all understand, to look down on anyone who's popular with the mums and dads or the grands or whatever. It became cool. Obviously, in rock and roll cred terms, you don't want that, right? You want to be rebellious and you want to... But the Beatles were rebellious and appealed at the same time. So they were loved by people of 80 years old whilst being rebellious because the 80-year-olds didn't necessarily see the rebellion or though maybe they did, um, because I don't know. But the point is they were themselves and everybody got what they wanted from them, from little kids of four years old who just loved the way, I loved the way the Ringo shook his hair. And I used to have hair, folks, and I used to shake it like Ringo uh, with, my, with my toy, what I imagined was my guitar, and um, although he was the drummer, but it didn't really matter. Close enough. It was one of them four. But at the same time as I'm doing that, someone of 14 is digging them and someone of 24 is digging them and someone of 34 is digging them and 44 and 54 and 64 and 74 and 84 and maybe even 94. Because what the Beatles were was like no one else had ever been, which was a genuine mass appeal because they had something for everyone or everyone could find something in them and whatever they found, and it always comes back to this for me about the Beatles is they were themselves. I think that is the three words that should be writ large. There's an interview with George I just found in 68 where, you know, he talks about mop tops 
And he said, you know, we were never the mop tops. You just said we were. We were only ever ourselves. And I always bristle when I hear people talk about the Beatles as mop tops. No, the Beatles were not mop tops. You just thought they were. Or they were presented to us that way. Uh, Not really. No, I'm not even sure they were. Maybe with the cartoons and things they were. But no, the Beatles themselves, whenever they connected to you, they connected as them. They were never being anything they were just being themselves. Yeah, well, you know, Lennon, you know, with Dusty on Ready, Steady, Go. And there he is in the collarless suit asking her about her scabs. I mean, seriously, you know, we can laugh at that. But think about that in 1963. How did the Beatles get their name? Uh, I just thought of it. You just thought of it? Another brilliant thing. <laughs> no, no, really. Were they called anything else before? Printed? They called the uh, quarry men. Oh, you rugged character. Oh, John, listen, listen. Do you have false teeth, as they always look so evil? Even? No. Even? They're all chipped and battered. No. Girls, would you say his teeth were chipped and battered? No. No! They're rather beautiful. No, they're real. Lovely teeth. (laughs) Is it true that when you were a kid, you were shot at for stealing apples? Yes, yes. Is that what these uh, beautiful marks are? No, they're scabbed. They're scabbed. Let's have a look. Show them your scabs. There's nothing there at all. He's got a beautiful Let me see your scabs. Hey. <laughs> I think this is where we better start finishing. When you say the Beatles were always themselves, that was slightly new to me. I thought maybe they were playing a part for a while to, to get to another stage. But, you know, your argument, and obviously you can back it up, um, that they were always themselves uh, is both inspirational to me, but also it's, it was kind of news to me. Right. They were they were never putting anything on. They could they could liven themselves up for something if they really wanted to turn it on. Like that Kennedy press conference is a first for them, uh, in certainly in that format. And they they just switched into the that version of themselves but it is still themselves they're just slightly projecting more but what you see is what you get they were the first what you see is what you get anything impure will ultimately fail because it will fatigue and fail only pure things actually can sustain because otherwise they'll get found out in time so artificiality can never actually sustain but it can shine brightly for a while Um, But only something that is absolutely genuine and natural and right can continue to sustain on this level. And that is what the Beatles were. As a kid in the 60s, you know, growing up now, you know, from uh, like 63 actually onwards, it was exciting in terms of pop music. I was completely turned on to it. You know, in 63, it was Jerry and the Pacemakers. <laughs> yeah, I admit it, Freddie and the Dreamers and, you know, the Beatles and Dusty. And and it just went through the 60s all the way through, you know, and those fantastic charts that we now see that they were so eclectic and, you know, so many fantastic classic records. The Beatles made it impossible to lose interest in them. You know, even as a kid, where you go on to the next thing, it'd be dead easy, right? You know, you've had a couple of years of Beatles and then it's the new thing. Nothing was as good. No no one was as consistent. And they just kept turning out, even just in terms of the singles. You know, this one great single after another. And it was just the gift that kept on giving. And it was, it was like every, I remember an American woman saying to me, it was like every release was a new gift. And I get that. I get that feeling. Um, And it was. It was just why I stayed with them all the way through because nothing was as good, obviously, for my taste, but also they just kept 
delivering. Yeah, they kept they, they seemed to reinvent themselves both image-wise and musically. I remember that feeling. I remember like they never got behind the curve. They always were ahead of the curve. It seemed. They were always cool. Yeah, they they never stopped being cool. Right. I mean, there was this very narrow thing, you know, before the 74 recatalog launch over here, the 10-year anniversary thing, there was this kind of brief period, 72-ish, 73-ish, where, you know, the Beatles hadn't been, you know, they'd all been individual solo artists for a while. And, and I do remember that, eh, maybe not so cool as they were, but it seems like once that campaign in America, I don't know about it in England, uh, but that campaign of the 10th year anniversary... And they, re, you know, got into the Red and Blue albums and all that kind of stuff, the repackaging. It was like them and the Beach Boys suddenly had this incredible resurgence and it, and in their case, never went away. They were never uncool again. Right, yeah, because I do remember a teacher at school in 73 around that time saying to me, you're still interested in the Beatles, you know, why? Like it had been 30 years ago. It comes back to what Mark was saying about them being authentic. That's the point about them being cool. Yeah, they were cool visually because they were authentic. That's who they were. They were cool. You know, they were always cool. And that's why 50 years later, they're still cool. It doesn't matter what fashions come and go. They're still cool. And they're cool to kids. You know, my, my daughter, when she was at high school, I'd wait for her in the car coming out. A number of kids I'd see in Beatles t-shirts because they're cool. Also, there's a little bit of the Marilyn syndrome going on with the Beatles where they become not only a great band and a great musical legacy, but they become a thing. They become a, an image like Marilyn Monroe. I disagree with you there. The people who wear Marilyn T-shirts don't necessarily know her films. Do you think every person who's wearing a Beatles T-shirt knows their music? Yeah. To some extent, I think. Yeah. They do. That's what. That's one of their entry points. I mean, the, the, the Beatles have infinite entry points, but Marilyn is an icon. I agree. The Beatles are much more than an icon, which is why that word shouldn't be applied to them, because they're actually just... They're just something else. There is there a word that um, we don't really, we don't necessarily even know yet. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. You know, people might wear a Marilyn shirt or James you know, Dean. Yeah, exactly. It's Elvis. It's cool. Beatles for me. Whenever I see someone wearing a Beatles T-shirt, to me, it's a statement saying I love their music. That's that's interesting because I don't see it that way. And now I'm going to make a conscious effort to see if I'm. Wrong. It would be interesting to have it tested to know. But I I, I feel I feel that I that's the way it is um nobody else was ever that famous the beatles didn't just become famous i mean why am i writing this three volume history amongst a million other reasons one of them is because no one really understands how big they were anymore i say no one we present company accepted but no one really gets it they you know like you read it in a book you know the beatles were big they'd had eight consecutive number one records where you didn't measure the bigness of the beatles by their number one records that's a, a, a almost an irrelevant arbiter although it is relevant to a point but they were big like no one had ever been been big before ever in any sphere of entertainment. Do you include Elvis? Absolutely, I include okay. it. They utterly eclipsed Elvis. And I don't put down Elvis by saying that. I'm not comparing him to, you know, to that to, to Elvis as a thing or whatever it is, you know. I mean, Felt that one coming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
It, they utterly eclipsed. Elvis never had anything like that penetration of breakthrough. Um, of course he didn't. He was one of the most recognized names around the globe, though. I mean, that, that, that... No, I'm not so sure that he was. Not on that scale. You're talking about 1956, 7, 8, 9, 16. No, he didn't. No, no. I'm saying much later, by 73, he was this thing like Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali. Of course he was well known. Of course he was hugely known. But he wasn't as he was. universally loved by, in 73 as they were. And he didn't tour the world. It's about that word penetration can we talk about penetration uh as much as you like it is a family show it is about that word the beatles they just they they went from young to old they went from black to white to, to any other color they went from working class to middle class to upper class they there wasn't anyone immune to them you just had to open your heart or soul or ears or whatever and there it was well, I guess I'll always disagree with you about the icon part because I think, and I don't think icon's a dirty word. I just think it is what it is. I don't think everybody who has parodied the uh, the zebra crossing picture or people who wear the t-shirts or who buy the lunch boxes or who buy all of that merchandising that is what keeps Apple happy and the money flowing in. I don't think every single person by a long shot, is familiar or knowledgeable about all of their music. Um, I think that it has become even bigger in a sense. They have, they have that. They have this incredible artistic integrity. But they are, as far as I can see, also a Marilyn, a Bogart, a thing. It's, it's bigger than the Stones or the Animals or any of their contemporaries. I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with them being... They're not mutually exclusive spaces. And as I say, one of the big shocks of my life working, going out to Apple, is to realize it's a merchandising company now. I mean, that's what they do. That bag sitting on the wall in my studio has to do with, you know, the easier path of workday is lunchboxes and T-shirts and notebook pads and all that kind of stuff. I mean, as, as George most profoundly said, someday... It's a, it's about anthology. It's a TV series, and it's a book, and ultimately it will be a T-shirt. And he wasn't joking. I mean, that's where the money is, in a sense, for them right now. I mean, it's just what is. It doesn't make it a bad thing. It doesn't make it... It doesn't alter why we love the Beatles. It's a sideshow, though. It's just part of the thing. We do, in our daily lives, consider the artistry of this thing, not its commerciality. Do you think in all of our work, because we're all working around the Beatles, the reason we're doing what we're doing interests me? I think I have a set of reasons. I think you have a set of reasons. I think you have a set of reasons. The idea of the trilogy, of, of your history of the Beatles, the, the incredible detail and accuracy, that is important for what reason? Because it's a, 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 a tremendous story. Because, um, well, for lots of reasons, but ultimately... If you funnel it down, it comes down to the more we know, the more we will understand it. And the more we enjoy it. You know, that was the thing, seriously, when, you know, reading what you had written, and I'm learning something on every page, and I told you that at the time. And, you know, it wasn't overkill. It wasn't like, okay, this is, you know, it, it was actually exciting. It was like, you know, they coming to life even more, you know? And, uh, that's the thing you can never get you know the more you get the more you love to lead a better life 
It's not even about the music with the Beatles. It's, it's just the music is just one aspect of it. A photograph, a photograph of the Beatles that you haven't seen before could just you could just look at that for a couple of days. <laughs> not non-stop though. I take it. Um, well, you could take a break for <laughs> tea and wee. Well, actually, you know that sort of kind of links to something else for me, which is. With the Beatles, we've got four of them. And when you're, whether it's a photo, whether it's on, you know, record, whether it's, you know, an appearance on TV, there's always one of them to keep your eye or your ears on, okay? You know, it's not just John with a quip or something, but it may be a certain look from Paul or, you know, George's dryness, whatever it is. They're constantly entertaining to me. It's like the ending of Yellow Submarine when they appear. It's obviously largely scripted, but I can't take... You know, I, ha- I want to keep watching it to, you know, now I'm only going to watch George, you know, and now I'm only going to watch John. Uh, uh, me too. There's a lot of things I watch four times because I just watch John, yes. I watch Paul, I watch George, I watch... Rino. And then a fifth time to watch them together. Yeah, yeah. And and it's not one of them interesting. It's always pretty much all four of them. Even if they even if they appear to be disinterested in what's going on, it's interesting to see that they're disinterested. Disinterested, exactly. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. Why are they disinterested? What's pissed them off at this moment? And so on and so on. And That's so what we on. talk about, right? Mm. Isn't it? It's like, yeah, so what was that about? Yeah. <laughs> I think what keeps me interested is this idea for me personally that it's a great 
book of instructions. I learn visually. You know, I watch things being done. That's how I learn how to do something. And by watching the Beatles and watching them go through time and watching them do what they do and what they were interested in has informed me. The only other guy that ever did that to me was Bowie. You know, it's like, it just, I got to watch this guy. Just what is he doing? Because there's something about this that enriches and informs my own life. And uh, I think that that is why I'm so fascinated with each and every little nuance is there a, a bad Beatles album? I mean, for me, you know, I'm not going to be listening to Yellow Submarine that often enough, to be honest. I love Yellow Submarine. Well, you would. You also love Head. I think there's not a red-blooded male. Uh, I did, you know. I wasn't going there, actually. That wasn't where I was going. I was actually talking about the monkey. Oh, album. that. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Both are delightful. <laughs> I know what Mark said before, it's not just about the music, and it absolutely isn't. But even just in terms of the music, we've got so much damn stuff that's fantastic. So much of it, okay? It's, you know, they're not albums that have two or three great tracks and then the rest is padding. It's way, 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 way easier for me with Beatles, in terms of almost anything they did, for me to list the things that I don't like or I don't think were that great. That's that's way faster and easier and that's on all the levels you know watching them any film clip like you say or you know bits of them on tv or radio it's always compelling for me and i don't think that's an obsession i just think it's who they were no it it and it it was evident early i think there's this great little piece of film from a kabc in los angeles it was at a charity event 1964 in brentwood and the mayor was involved, and you know yeah. these people show up. But the mayor's son had seen the Beatles the previous night at Hollywood Bowl, and he, in the moment, summed it up the best for the for the average fan for me about the Beatles, is saying that, you know, these guys look like they're having a really great time, and they're letting us in on it in a sense. But it's all about how much fun they're having. So, what about then once? You know, we get through 66 and 67, and they don't always look like they're having a load of fun. But did you notice it then? Because I didn't. Because for me, okay, some of the way it was cut anyway, let it be, it's every bit as compelling for me. You know, some people say, oh, it's too, it's a bl miserable, bloody experience, but not for me. I would dearly love to be, to look at all of the footage, because I've often wondered if it was cut as like, okay, we know the Beatles are breaking up. Yeah, but sorry, but that's not really my point. My point is, even as it's cut, yeah. they're that compelling for me that, it, you know, whatever it is, it's no, still but, fascinating. No, but you already bought in. Mm. If they were divisive, if that was shown in 64, I don't, I'm right. not so yeah, sure well, it would be the yeah. same sort of thing. You've already, you're already invested. Now you're in the family and it's a family fight. That's yeah. a little bit different. I, I think this part of their initial appeal and, and sucking us into this world, which we'll never leave, is this incredible sense of all for you know they were the four musket they were the three musketeers with d'artagnan you know yeah i've never really thought of it that way i mean you must say right that as a kid it was infectious that they seemed to you know into it as you said that you feel their own passion but i've never really thought about that i always saw it as that i i think that was what attracted what attracted me you know you're very polite um i think what attracted me to that was to the beatles in a sense was this unit this unity this family uh and even if there was in bickering there was still this idea of protection of the of the unit and uh i found that and still find it interesting even with all of their bickering and their fighting or whatever uh 
there did seem to be a love and a devotion. I mean, you know, that just was understood. It was just there. And no matter how big, bad the bickering got or whatever, uh, there was just so many role models. Not that they were trying to do it. They just were. And they made excellent Again, examples yeah. of how to live your life. Don't listen when people say you come from an area of the country that you shouldn't be bothering doing this. You know, fuck them all. You know, just do it. Uh, it's the greatest message. It's the greatest inspirational message. So I, I found them models for life. You know, not uh, you know, I'm not going to do every single thing they do or whatever. You know, because that's be silly. But but certainly, I've found uh, as as I've gone through and tried to emulate certain experiences. You know, Mark and I have both been to Rishikesh. I felt physically and spiritually changed by my trip to India a couple of years ago, especially going to Rishikesh, you know, standing in the Ganges. And I wonder sometimes, Beatles come back from Rishikesh a little bit different than they had been. It just all endlessly fascinates me. There's so many things I wouldn't know about if it wasn't, you know, the Beatles concept. It was shining a light on it. Abracadabra, abracadabra.
I want to put a word in for the press conferences because when I was young and naive, Your Honour, I used to think that Beatles press conferences were were boring, tedious affairs uh, that the Beatles had, had to put up with. And, um, you know, every time they played a city in America in three consecutive tours and elsewhere in that same time period, they always gave a press conference wherever they went, in a hotel or backstage or wherever. And I made the mistake of saying in, in my first book, The Beatles Live, thinking that The Beatles had hated them because they didn't appear to be super inspired by them. So I kind of jumped in on their behalf and kind of intimated that they hated them. And Derek Taylor, who I then knew, phoned me up and said they didn't hate them. They didn't hate them. They actually enjoyed the press conferences. Most of the press conferences were really good fun. And it was just like... Oh. Thank you, Derek. In my, I don't know, whatever it was that was in within me in my late teens, early 20s, I kind of wanted to write it that way because that's like the cliche. I can't get enough of Beatles press conferences now. Whatever press conference they ever gave at any time, you're getting them. You are getting John Lennon. You are getting Paul McCartney. You are getting George Harrison. You are getting Richie or Ringo. And you are getting them straight into a microphone. And it's never not good value. It's just fantastic. Every city they went to, they did two performances or even three sometimes. They did the gig and they did the press conference. And the press conference is another gig and as worthy of enjoyment and archival exploration as anything else. I mean, I understand that you're listening to the press conferences for their answers. I mean, that's, you know, where the treasure is. Not only that, I'm actually listening for the, um, the mentality of the questions. Well, that's what I was going to ask, though. Being that you listen to all of them, I mean, do you fairly rapidly get to a point of like, oh, so, some of these fucking inane questions that keep coming up? I feel for them that the questions weren't better because whenever they got a, any kind of question, they would respond to it. And good questions were certainly given good answers. So one historically would wish for better questions to have had better answers. But they always, whatever they gave, they yeah. gave of themselves. Yeah. And they didn't put on any airs and graces or shows. So that is John Lennon this day in this hotel at this moment. This is Richie Starkey or Ringo Starr in this hotel or backstage at that moment, whether he's answering or not answering, whether he's looking bored or not bored. That, I, I keep saying it, it's interesting. There's something compelling about looking at their reactions to things and the way they dealt with, in some instances, stupidity. The way they dealt with it was incredible. Um, and it tells you more about them. So even if the question is poor, the way they answer it is revelatory. I've been a longtime fan of the press conferences as well. My my dear friend Gina Smith, Gina the photo lady, hi Gina, was one of the people that really got me to pay more attention to the press conferences for, for pretty much what Mark was saying. The press conferences in 66 are routinely the most compelling. I mean, there's, there's not a bad one. I mean, and because they are really on fire... One of my favorites is the Toronto one where George yes. just really takes off. Yes, yes. And he's just letting everybody have it. He is swinging wildly and connecting. <laughs> George, I think the, uh, the business of uh, John's statement has been cleared up pretty well. I'd like to ask you what you think is really important in life. I tend to agree that probably the Beatles are more popular if popularity is Thanks the gauge than Jesus. But is popularity the most important thing? What is the most important thing in life? Love. Love is, is the main thing, I'd say. But I mean, there's lots of things in Christianity that are so right, which all the people 
will set about us after the comment was made. They don't really sort of keep up with what they're supposed to believe in. I mean, first of all, love thy neighbour like thyself. Well, I mean, they tended to hate a bit more, didn't they? The people who disliked us. Well, for a kickoff, that's not a Christian answer to whatever Lennon said. Lennon? <laughs> sure. John, may I ask you, what is it in your estimation that can and does really inspire young people today? I don't know, honestly. No, I just know um, that what we're doing inspires them to a degree, but not not well, to inspire them uh, to do anything else rather, other than enjoy themselves. Well, what, what you do excites them and makes them enjoy themselves. Yeah, what about inspiring them? They get inspired by people who talk honestly to them and not people who <coughs> talk in take riddles. the long way around and talk in riddles. So they te I think, it, it, you know, if they believe us on some things, it's because we can say it like oh, they would that. think it, because we know we're exactly the same. We don't pretend to be anything better than we are, you know. Do you always play it straight, Ringo? No. <laughs> Thanks very much. I'd like to address this to anyone who cares to answer. What are the Beatles going to do about their diminishing popularity? What diminishing? You know? Well, for a start, there's no signs, as far as we're concerned, of it diminishing. Our records and our shows are still selling as well as ever. You're so finished, George. Really You're finished. <laughs> your opinion. And if our popularity does diminish, well, we'll be the last to worry. Hooray! Gentlemen, uh, you received medals for assisting the British economy a couple of years ago. The economy's in kind of rough shape now. And we're still assisting it now. <laughs> Anything to give it a fresh boost? Any plans to give it? Well, we could give them the medals back. <laughs> Oh, it's very friendly here. I think I'll relax. <laughs> the 66 press conferences, to me, the Beatles seem like they've been transported from the future. They are light years ahead. <laughs> and they're sitting there and they're giving these, even the flip answers are so sophisticated. Uh, you know, in Los Angeles, you know, the great moment is this, you know, guy deadpans, you know, Time Magazine says that uh, Norwegian Wood was written about a lesbian and Day Tripper was written about a prostitute. And, and of course... Paul and his beautifully, without missing a beat, well, we're just trying to write songs about prostitutes and lesbians. What's the problem? You know, and just everybody laughs. And But it's just... It, That's you know, such an English sense of humor. But it just, it looks so modern. It looks like today. It doesn't look like 52 years ago. 52 years... I'm appalled, sir, that you would misinterpret my, you know, you know, what I mean? just nobody would do that. Thank goodness the Beatles operated in a period without any hindrance of political correctness. Because oh, political yeah, correctness, yeah. as as we as it was born, was necessary, but as it's been executed, has been really, really, really disappointing, uh, for the most part, because it's actually clamped down on on freedoms that are are not offensive, but simply were words, just words, evocative, descriptive words. They would have adapted, Mark. They, you know, Lenin. Lenin would have come out in a dress or something, just just so he. They could would say have what adapted, but um, I mean, to be in that room, and this is what one thing about looking at the films. The great, one of the many great things about the Beatles is that we have so much of it. Had they existed a few years earlier, we would have so much less. 
But because they were part of the television age and people had tape recorders and cameras and so on, and because they were the Beatles people wanted to take and because they were the Beatles people wanted to keep, and we have so much of them, and yet when you look at them, you can actually imagine being in that room. So they must have seemed, as you said, like from some other time zone. You know, not literally time zone like Greenwich Mean Time or British Summertime, but I mean some other year. They were just themselves. And when they arrived in in America, and this is also what um, I feel as an Englishman, when they arrived in America or any other country, and I'm sure you know this, Richard, they were English yeah, or British. Absolutely. And they took that, that, that no-nonsense, no-bullshit, street-smart Britishness to the world, and the Brits have a great way of cutting through stuff. Exactly. One of the reasons we wanted to be that, mm. because we all, we, even if we couldn't articulate it, we all felt it, you know, like, wow, the command of, you know, th there's a thing that, that I love, is that I keep going back to that, that JFK press conference, where they've been on a plane all night, basically, or all afternoon, you know, it's, they left in the afternoon, and they're still in the afternoon, but it's nighttime. They only just got back from Paris, packed their bags and got out to the Yeah, airport. and they've got to be tired. And to be that, I mean, Paul shows fatigue at one second, and they still recover and make it funny, you know. It's I'll, not I'll, fatigue, it's nerves. Oh, maybe it's nerves. All right, but, you know, these guys are a hostile, very few pictures have ever been taken of what the Beatles were facing. If you turned around to see the stream, the the, the line of cameras and this crowd of these guys and it's like, oh, geez, I just got off the plane. I just cleared customs. I don't want to deal with this. And for them to have, and and they're, you know, Brian Somerville, their press guy, is complete. He's completely flustered. If you don't shut up, we can't have a press conference. You know, he he's out of control. He's no help. He's no Will Derek Taylor. Will you shut up? Will you please yeah. <laughs> shut up? Well, he did say please. He did. Well, he was English. Press relations, that was. Yeah, but but the thing is, is. <laughs> They didn't. He he's out of control. The press is out of control. Everyone's out of control except the Beatles, and they just stand up. They're cool as cucumbers. They're tired, and within seconds, they've taken this crowd that is lying in wait for them, and they're laughing. And they're and they're they've disarmed them. It, it is it is one of the most. Forget the Ed Sullivan show. It's one of the most pivotal moments because media is what it is, and still to this day is a problem around the world. And here's these guys that are babies. They're 23 years old or 20 years old, and they disarm these people. And they're putty in their hands. Because they're themselves. Richard and I both know this, but there are a lot of places around the world that shape the people that um, who live up, who live there. But growing up in Britain in that post-war period, I understood their sharpness. I was never that sharp myself, unfortunately, but I understood it. I know where it comes from, and you must know it too. Yeah. It's it's about growing up in England post-war and going to school and and going to, you know, all the, all the things that you did as a young person in those days it was, it was who they were. And we both know that. Yeah. And um, I just look at four Englishmen there who are just, they're, they're fearless. But we didn't know. And, no. and the thing was is that it was such an eye-opener because when you saw that as an American kid, mm. you realized that's what you wanted to be. You just didn't know it existed. Yeah. And to do it, you almost felt like you had to have a, you know, talking like this and, you know. You know, you, you felt like Which that was wasn't. part. 
Because what it really was, was in the mind. It was all in the mind. It was in the but, mind. It wasn't but, about how you spoke. It was in the but, mind. But we didn't have a blueprint for that. No. You see? So when these guys come over, because like I say, all entertainers were supposed to, you know, kiss the ring. <laughs> and these guys weren't going to kiss anything. <laughs> <laughs> much less a ring or an ass or any you know which everybody else is doing and and that was just we i don't think any of us could have articulated it but we all sensed it even as children mm. you could just see these guys are flipping the two in your case the two fingers and in our case the middle finger no they never flipped two fingers well but but it but it that was would have been too offensive no well, they were but, not but, offensive but no they weren't offensive they were but capable what, of offensiveness of course but they weren't being offensive no in no understand what i mean what i what yeah. i mean is is that you don't necessarily have to physically be aggressive to flip the fingers it it means in in the most gentle and subtle of ways they were still sticking it to convention they were, they were that and and they were sticking it to what and and they did it with disarm they did it with charm they did mm. it like you you were being seduced into this yes and even those hardened like you know as as, <clears throat> as ed was saying you know uh no i'm not gonna do him but you know what i mean it, it, he was saying you know these these press photographers and whatever these hardened veterans have never seen this and he was being very honest about that yes. and you know they hadn't seen it because most performers would kiss the ring and just say, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. I got to I gotta make sure that I'm doing what Ed wants or, or the press photographers want or whatever. Yes. That never happened in America. I, I can't think of one performer who ever did it. But you see, that, that's the thing, right? You know, that whole thing of in the early days, they were doing what they needed to do, you know, and they're going on the TV shows and they're doing all the press stuff and they're largely happy and smiling and, and all that stuff. But they're always themselves, right? There's always that cutting humor. I didn't realize There's it. always that acerbic statement. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's not sellout. You know, it's no, not sellout. No, maybe that's it's, why it cuts it's, through. We, we always get 100% Beatles. And, yeah. And that's, you know, another thing. That's such a strong connection, I think, for so many people. Yeah. I, I remember, you know, when John died... Scott Spencer, I think it was, in Rolling Stone magazine had the sort of lead article. And there was a line in there that I'm paraphrasing, but he said that, you know, John Lennon didn't just capture people's attention. You know, a, a show like Dallas can do that. What he, what he was able to do was capture their imagination. And that's on a whole other level. Oh, yeah. And I think that's what the Beatles did. They did it individually and they did it collectively. And the soul. And as I say, whether they were inten doing it intentionally, what a, what a roadmap. What a, what a thing to emulate. You're like, wow, look at this independence and this journey and this vulnerability, but the strength and the belief. I, you know, the thing that gets me is in their post-careers, post-Beatles career, why did they not have the sense of editing? that they had as a collective. That amazes me. Well, that's you another know, show. That's another show, but, but 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 that's something about the four of them together yeah. and that decision-making process. I mean, you listen, they never made a mistake. You know, you listen to the outtakes and you go, yeah, they always picked the best thing. Yeah. You know, it was there was really not a case where you go, wow, they missed it with this. I think maybe I would have swapped Leave My Kitten Alone for Mr. Moonlight. Right. <laughs> but outside of that, yeah. I can't think of one. Yeah. And, and well, it's like you say, Mark, you know, with Magical Mystery Tour, that we can, you know, pick it apart and all that stuff. And it's been done. It's been raked over the coals for 50 plus years. By, by people whose opinions don't matter. Right. And, and the point is, though, what are we getting in Magical Mystery Tour? We're getting 100% Beatles. Everything, right, we're seeing is how they wanted it photographed. It's how they wrote it. 
it's how they directed those videos. You know, and when we yeah. see I'm the Walrus, that's the Beatles idea. That's what they want. So say what you want, but you're getting. No, Beatles, it's incredible. So. And and when you hear, you know, there's a great uh, bit of film oh, video tape that was made in uh, 1980 and Lennon's being interviewed and he's sitting there and I think it's the record plant in, in the background they're trying to do sound for Star Wars one of the Star Wars pictures that's right and he's talking about that actually what they're doing is lifting sound from Star Wars one of the sound effects for one of Yoko's tracks <laughs> no 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 I'm being serious that's absolutely true that's exactly what they were doing. You know, that's you why can, John was there. You've slipped me the rubber peach more than once. I'm not buying this time. <laughs> Sorry, true. man. So, uh, but but you know, he talks about that and the the feel like he's kind of you know well obviously the people you know shooting uh, I am the walrus you know we're out in the field doing this thing and they didn't realize we're formatting for television so you know it, we're not framing properly and suddenly the police are in a place they're not supposed to be and it just but once again Lenin overcomes and he you know wow I kind of liked it this way and you know I'm telling to you know miss the frame a bit and do you know I mean it's just I've don't get me going on Magical Mystery Tour because I think it's so underrated I think it's the greatest home movie ever made truly the greatest home movie and we can glean things for the next hundred years from that it's genius it's a brilliant 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 thing and I think the reason it didn't do well is because people just don't appreciate they're getting an, a, a John Lennon dream put on film look we, for 50 now 51 years Magical Mystery Tour has been assumed to have been a flop because a bunch of Fleet Street journalists who had it in for the Beatles who were all between 40 to 55 or 60 years old and had to write their copy for the following morning wrote that it was as Boxing Day Entertainment and as Beatles General Entertainment it was rubbish, it was plotless, it was amateur, it was witless, it was whatever. That can all be set to one side. That's historically interesting that the Beatles film was judged that way by those people on that day at that time. That's to one side. What it really comes down to is, what did the Beatles do here? And what they did is they, they went out with some ideas and they shot film. And it's the Beatles and there's no filter between them and what we see because we get what the camera captured that was of their direction. And you might wish, if you like, if you're that kind of a person, to judge that it may have been this or may have been that. Who are you to judge? Who is anybody to judge? Let's just look at the Beatles as artists doing something artistic with an artistic creative tool. And in that respect, Magical Mystery Tour is just hour upon hour upon hour, if you look at the outtakes, which I do, hour upon hour upon hour of absolute joy because it's them to me with nothing in between. No editor, you know, especially if you're looking at the rushes, no editor, no no critic. What the, the Beatles were, as it happens, for the most part, hugely appreciated in their time which isn't always the case one thing that's been a huge part of my love of the beatles has been our friendship mark you know yeah. just uh, yeah. something that you mentioned up front in the book about our conversations and the laughter the humor yeah and obviously it's not only laughter and humor but that's a part of it obviously that's our friendship but it's also the subject matter, right? Yes. It's like never, ever ending. Yeah. And, you know, we can just talk about it and go on and on and, and wander all over the place mm. to different topics. 
even in hard times in my life, you know, things been going on in my life and didn't even mention that because these were uplifting conversations. Mm. You know, it's just, it's a, that's a huge part of it is sharing this love. Well, I, I think I told you, um, one of you guys, that story that, you know, the when my, my beloved grandmother, who I was born on her birthday, when she passed away at, my, at age six, the first thought in my mind was, uh-oh, because my protector was gone. I had one other protector, an emotional protector. It was the Beatles. Mm. And, and that was where I went. You know, I didn't have grandma anymore. It was like I dove deeper into the Beatle experience and the cartoons. And the, the concept of seeing them took on a whole new meaning after my grandmother died because I was like, I, I just needed to see them. And I was devastated when I couldn't. But I don't think I'd be talking to either of you guys if, um, if I had. You know, I just, as, as my friend Johnny V said, you got to build a time machine, go back, see the show, and you'll be a normal human being. And none of this crap will have happened to you. <laughs> you wouldn't have moved to England. You wouldn't have done all this stuff. But all of that, I mean, I realize how much those guys affected my life. It's gigantic. You know, it really was gigantic. It wasn't just an influence. It was like I made these decisions to go do these things and change my life because not to, not to copy, but it seemed like a path forward when I didn't have one. You know, like those guys seem to be doing okay. I mean, maybe that's the way to do it. I don't think for me they've ever shown me a path as such. Uh, not really. I think I've always been on my own path. But what they have done, particularly since the turn of the century, which was just after that, that I knew I had to write these books. I do feel that the Beatles have freed my mind. I, I, I'm fond of my past in certain respects in many respects however i look back on the old me before i kind of really tuned into what the beatles were uh when i was merely a fan if you like and it's since they freed my mind that i've actually come to understand that they didn't leave any messages at all all they did was show us how you can be that's what i mean by path yeah yeah it, it, it i know it is the same thing the thing about the word message is it's laden with the implication that someone has left it for you. Uh, messages are left for people. Or that it was, it was premeditated, Yeah, and I, I, I don't go into any of that. I just go into the fact that it, it was an example, not by trying to lead. When you try to leave an example, you behave abnormally. Um, but merely the example of these guys thinking in the way they thought has been useful for me as a tool in life. Uh, not so much that I stop and think, how would John react? How would George react to this? How would Paul react or Ringo? But it's just like, be yourself. I keep coming back to those same two words, be yourself. Um, and that's every press conference and every recording session and every, every, everything that you can look at. And we have so much of it. We have, we have the complete trail of everything they did. And, um, I know I'm repeating myself, but it, it always comes back to that, that same thing. It's just like, that's what they were. They were just pleasing themselves. But it was the inspiration. And that's why I mean by a road. I mean, roadmap is a loaded word, apparently. I, I just mean that. It suggests that someone's drafted it and the well, Beatles yeah. weren't drafting no, it. No, no. And I don't mean that. It just means that what a great example of, of as you say, being yourself. Just mm. trust. And the, the other big word that comes up with me with the Beatles, I think, is trust or belief in one's self. Yes, that's it. Because everything seemed to be against them in many pivotal points. And yet, uh, I love this thing, and maybe it's an invention of some writer, but something will happen. 
Mm. that faith that something will happen. Mm. They didn't say good or bad, but something will happen. Yes. And I, I've used that in my life constantly since you know I was a kid. You know, that, that, and that came from them, this idea that, well, you know, this is going really well, or this is going not so well, but something will happen, mm. and I just got to hang in there. And so it's still it's a renewable lesson all the time. Yeah. Well, you know, I did have sort of some direct stuff that I was following with them, post Beatles, really. The John Lennon Plastic Ono oh Band album came out in 1970. I was 11. Imagine I was 12. By my mid-teens, I'd really tuned into those albums, and they had a big influence on me. You know, at the time when I could be influenced as such, you know, I was looking in a way to be influenced, I suppose. But they really did. That message resonated, uh, you know, with the Plastic Ono Band, this whole thing of believing in yourself, you know, and uh, basically not following leaders. And I mean, that's, you know, obviously one particular song with that, but it's kind of a, a running message through the album. And even you know, Give Me Some Truth. God, that resonates all these years later, of course, but, and they all do, actually. That's another thing with the Beatles, okay? These messages, 50 years later, they're, sadly, in many cases, they're, they're just as valid, if not more so. Um, but, yeah, that stuff resonated with me, some of that stuff on Lennon's early solo albums that I carry with me to this day. Look at me. Who am I supposed to be? I'm blocking her mic. Look at me. Who am I supposed to be? Who am I supposed to be? Look at me. What am I supposed to be? Who am I? 
albums I had to come back to. I was angry with the Beatles when they broke up. I remember be distinctly being angry, and I was resistant. Uh, I was very sympathetic to Ringo, and I, I remember feeling, I had nothing to base it on but feelings. I remember thinking that Ringo was probably the odd man out, and probably uh, was going to be the one most injured by them no longer being together. So I always favored, and I mean, I loved It Don't Come Easy. It was a great record, and I, I was all over the Ringo album in 73. But when the Beatles broke up, I took a bit of a break from white music. It went completely to, I was now spending more time with my Philadelphia family, and I was totally immersed in, in the TSOP and and what was happening with black music the philly sound absolutely i was in love with it and i came back to those records later it, it's funny um i remember distinctly when walls and bridges came out and that was one of the things that really i fell in love with that record because it was what, like what about the red and blue albums the year before well see i already had the records they didn't mean anything to me i already had all that stuff and i still loved it i was still listening to beatles records but to me i wanted something new it didn't none of that meant anything to me you like, really you had all that stuff at the age of oh yeah 12. i had all the records uh, yeah i ran out of stuff then 12, that was 13. yeah all now I, I did I, there was no way i didn't have much of the catalog at that point i had certain bits but i didn't have I mean, it, I didn't all have it all till because what, what about the uk mixes though no that i didn't get into that ah. that wasn't that was hard to get yeah but wouldn't the red and blue albums when they were released here were they released with the reverb they were crap. I mean, Lennon will, you know, he goes on record I know, saying how but, awful they but were. But they were still the UK mixes. I don't think they were because they were they they were the, like the instruments on one side and the vocals. Well, the, 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 the crappy they were stereos. Awful. They were they, awful. Yeah, but that was that the, is the UK mixes. The oh, UK mixes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I. I'm not quite sure I ever bought those two albums because huh. I did. They seemed meaningless. So walls and bridges replaced Gamble and Huff. Re walls walls and bridges was. The bridge, in a sense, was back to Gamble. I mean, that was, to me, John's incredibly New York, honest. The the record we kind of... I mean, he's still Beatle John, but he's not... There's nothing Beatle-y to me about that record. Had you had you not even listened to Mind Games? No, I loved, I loved Mind Games, but it was not the same as Walls and Bridges. Walls and Bridges, to me, Mind Games was a bit nostalgic, you know? And I only liked a few of the tracks a lot. But when Walls and Bridges, to me, wow john's reinvented himself it's it's so modern it's so it's so new york it's so i could see the black influence finally you know i'm, I'm i could see something i had never seen in john's music and i've always loved that album I, it, to me it's still yeah my favorite post beatles you know solo album right. that and ringo <laughs> and and Two red rose speedway albums. i love red rose speedway and i love a uh, band on the run so it's not to to mm. and but i mean also obviously the, you, everything you just said is 73 74 except what i was about to say which is the one i respect the most and the one i think that i felt is still the greatest of the post beatles albums which is all things must pass yeah but we're not looking for respect on this show eric we're looking for love well i did love parts of it i mean i truly love i mean the thing about 
All Things Must Pass is it took me a long time to get back into it. It was almost like, hey, Jude, and let it be. You heard, in this country at least, My Sweet Lord, so many times it got a bit much. I had to come back to it later. But I, you know, others, you know, Art of Dying or whatever. I mean, you know, and What Is Life is still my favorite track from that album. I mean, I, I just think that's... There's no doubt about it in, in the UK... The um, 62, 66, 67, 70 albums definitely spurred more interest. All of a sudden, I wasn't quite as passe, if you know what I mean. You know, it brought them back into the mainstream a bit more. And it never really let up. And then in 76, they reissued the singles and all that stuff. For here was that 10th year, that 74 thing. And it had worked out really well for Capitol with reviving the Beach Boys, you know, Endless mm. Summer album. Yeah. And and so really when they, they eventually, it, it kind of wrote a, a wave to that rock and roll music album with mm. the crazy awful cover which i have mm. um which ringo even ringo hated you know you open it up and it's like 50s and you know uh, ice cream sodas and 50s imagery is like, that's nothing to do with us even ringo you know yeah um but but it did it had the desired effect suddenly the beatles were really back and never went away and yeah. and so and then there was this sort of Every year now, there was a new product. We got Hollywood Bowl in 77, right? And then we started, you know, the Ron Fermanac period happened when we, you know, we, we there was a Beatles Rarities album. You know, I got the Australian one because you got the clean version of She's a Woman, you know, with no reverb, which was the magic. But then the one time Capitol really said, well, we can't really put that out. We've got to do something more intense and they did and you know the american rarities all of that stuff was kind of building 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 and then real music well that was the one that fell apart didn't it but at least you got the open-ended interview that's kind of when they dipped into the well and and love songs was was a bit of an abortion yeah as well. that, that was, was pretty terrible that was pushing it though i do have the single the girl singles picture sleeve yes right that was a rarity <laughs>
One thing the three of us have in common is that we're all of a certain age. Yes. Um, but if you ask anyone who's, you know, I, I regularly meet people who got into the Beatles through the anthology, say, or the one album, say, or the reissue of Yellow Submarine, or any of any any entry point, and um, and then from there, once in, you can explore it. The only thing that they can't have, and it's no fault of their own, is is the true sense of chronology. In a, with any association to real life events in real time, yeah. it's all past. Nonetheless, that's irrelevant because once you're in, then you can go running around. Yeah, I understand people whose entry point is much later than us. It doesn't diminish the no. passion at all. No, no. I love connecting actually with people. People listen to this show. What show's that? Yeah, I don't know, man. It's, it's, a... <laughs> it's a drinking show swigging through the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love it. I love it. The fact that there are so many people out there who, not it's not just that they know about the Beatles and they know a lot of stuff, but it's the passion for it, okay? And it's, you know, that comes over where just the fact that they've researched this stuff themselves or, you know, read about it and they know it so much in depth speaks to their love for it. And so I love that connection, you know, in and of itself. I, I think it's just fantastic and that it's so international okay that it really is global you know we get yeah. we get messages from people all over you know and we look at the breakdowns of the downloads and it's amazing you know in middle east far east wherever it's completely global yeah mid 70s for me i you know if i was at like college and people knew i was into the beatles but i was kind of on my own 
I was sort of isolated with it. I don't know if I knew anyone who shared that sort of level of passion for them. And the first thing was the reissued Beatles Monthly. You know, so it was, oh, wow, suddenly I've got a connection to other people. It's just the knowledge that there's other people out there. And then the first time I went to a Beatles convention, you know, and began, that was really exciting for me to suddenly connect with all these other people. And so today, it's amazing. It's gone on to a whole other scale with the internet. You know, I I had, I remember years ago in the 70s having a pen pal in Japan, and that was, wow, you know, getting a letter from Japan. But now it's just, we almost take it for granted. I don't, because I remember how it was. And I just love that fact that, you know, can connect with all these people. And as you say, it doesn't matter where they're from. It, the message gets through. Absolutely. And, and, it, and, it, and it enriches the lives the same way it did us. It's yeah. the same kind of feeling, the same solace or inspiration or whatever it was that yeah. they took from it. Yeah. It, it's so interesting to me that it's so universal, you know, um, which, you know, once again, to me means there's magic involved. Right. You know, to more practical people. And you see, so I love to, it also manifests itself in different forms. I mean, you two guys are collectors. I was never a collector. I remember the first time Mark came over to my place in London, about 81, I guess. And uh, it was like, okay, so let's see your collection. It was almost like, well, I don't actually have a collection. <laughs> Which means you have a sane life. That's what it means. It means you have space. <laughs> and not lots of dust. Yeah, those days I was into like the videos, you know, it was the early days of video and taping stuff and, and all that stuff. And obviously the music, but I was never like, oh, I've got a red label, love me do, or, you know, whatever. It was never that for me. It's just how, you know, as I said, it manifests itself in different forms. It doesn't mean it's at a higher or a lower level for anyone. It's just no. different. No, it's and, and the, those things to me are either they serve a function um, in this puzzle that I'm trying to make or or the, it's a religious artifact or something that just but gives get, me yeah, But pleasure. it doesn't matter, actually. It doesn't need explaining. It's just each to their own, yeah. you know. And, um, yeah, but, and we're not all the same. I, get, I, I mean, I, I get it. You know, it's not like I think, well, that's ridiculous or that's weird. It's just different. Yeah. If we were all exactly the same, we all had the same sort of collection, the all the, the same path, I think, in, in a sense, that weakens the overall effect of the Beatles. It's the fact that so many different types of people take so many different types of things. This is it. It's, again, like entry points into into admiring or, or liking or loving the Beatles is, is that there are so many different things that you can gather around you if you want to have things. Um, and it's, it's interesting that, that there are people who collect and there, and, and there are people who don't collect, but it's still, the, the interest is still absolutely there, you know, all the way along. And the other thing is that passion doesn't mean you're blind and deaf or lost critical faculties. You can be, you can be, if you wish to be, and if you're so minded, you can be objective about whatever it is you're seeing or hearing and it doesn't mean you've got to love everything totally right people yeah. just assume i'm going to go to every, every every time that paul or ringo tours and 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 i don't but the, does that mean i don't like them of course it doesn't mean that at all i mean i'm spending my entire life researching them right. but would i necessarily enjoy going that's another matter and, and I choose to go or not to go in the moment because I don't blind passion is something else. That's that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about appreciation. Right. A, a critical appreciation, a, you know, a, a objective one as well as a subjective one. I mean, absolutely. There are people in the Beatle world, right? You know, I'll pick on, you know, there'll be people 
McCartney fans where he literally can do nothing wrong and his voice hasn't degraded one iota. That that is a different thing. But it does exist. Yeah, I guess it does. I guess I tend to look past that because I know it's, I feel it's an emotional response. And I many times try to remove emotion um, and try to just deal with the facts. It it may be, you know, a bit like when I was in my mid-teens where I would defend anything Beatles, right? So if it was like, you know, two virgins, I'd be saying it's cosmically conscious, you know, not having a clue what that meant. If anyone around here says they want to hear anything but the Rutlers, I'm going to come looking for you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Bill Murray the K on WCWC, right. Be here in Flushing, <laughs> talking about their trousers. It's a big, big day in Flushing. So, yes, I agree with you. But, you know, we don't have to defend anymore. Thank God somebody, Jason sent me uh, my first media appearance where that's survived, where I talk about the Beatles, was in 1982. And it was on WCVB-TV here in Boston. And it was the 20th anniversary of Love Me Do. Oh, my God. And people were freaking out. 20 years. This is not the 20th anniversary of I Want to Hold Your Hand. You well, know what, what about I mean? me? Three years ago, they broke up and you still love them? <laughs> but anyway, after I did my little bit and they, they canvassed people in the record store. And I remember distinctly, you know, a couple of people, one girl especially, she goes, well, the Beatles are passe. Why, do you, why are you asking me this question? And this other guy goes, Yellow Submarine? I don't like that. You know, and it was just, there was, there was still a place where you had to defend the Beatles because people, you had to say, no, no, this is really, really great. You don't have to do that anymore. Nobody, there's no well, attack. I also chose not to do it. There was only so much limit before I'd stopped defending silly love songs, okay? You know, but there was that period where like I was. Believe songs. it or not, people won't believe it, but there was a period where I used to defend all that stuff. Now, I, and then at some point I turned on it. On him. <laughs> no, no but yeah, not, not, you know, not quite to the degree that some people may think. But it was, again, it was just being real, you know, that's why I never joined a political party, because I didn't want to have to always toe the party line when I know they're wrong. So it's the same thing. I gave up doing that, you know, and uh, basically just call it as it is. Well, I, I know exactly how you feel about political parties. I would never join a party that would have me as a member. Oh, uh, Groucho. Yeah, right, me and Groucho. Yeah, oh, Groucho is yeah. a huge influence on me. But, but um, I know what you mean. There's not that feeling anymore that you have to and and anything paul does now i think is gravy on this amazing career talk about that white album reissue it makes me feel uplifted it makes me feel connected you know i'm connecting with something there you know sort of touching the source and i'm sort of dialed in i'm I'm engaged you know and it's that's an exciting feeling because as you get older or certainly in my case i get older sort of turn off to quite a few things and start to tune things out that you know bore me or takes a bit more to kind of get me excited about this stuff and you know it's like here it's happened again it's fantastic it was something i already loved and i've got more stuff to love well it to me it's the first thing i've heard in 50 years that made me question maybe i got the order wrong you know, because I've always said Revolver, and Revolver's it for me. You know, I just love Revolver. And I hear this new version, and I go, oh, man, I don't know. This is really something. What I'm trying to say is I'm using the White Album reissue as an example, but what are your feelings when it's something like that, That you know, or anything to do Beatles? It's not about White Album, but anything Beatles where you get really turned on by it. What's the feeling? Feeling is euphoria. It's It's a feeling of anything's possible, 
I feel really good in the moment, yeah. but I also feel inspired to do something about it. What am I taking this material and doing? Am I just going to be entertained? And that's fine. Or do I take it as an inspiration? Or do I take it as a challenge? Or do I take it as something beyond sitting there with my headphones on and listening and going, wow, this is really amazing. The Beatles inspired me. That's part of why I love them so much. They inspired me to do better, to try to do better to ask more of myself, to believe, because everyone tells you, forget it. And they got told, forget it. And they had challenges, and they had issues. But they'd made something happen. They always made something happen. That's the greatest lesson to me. Make something happen. You can do it. You can be, everything can be against you, and you can make something happen. What a wonderful message. And to be, to have it not come from Mother Teresa, you know, no no slam against her, and she was a saint and everything. She didn't have many hit records. She had no hit records. <laughs> and, I mean, the fashion sense was lacking. I'm sorry. You know, loved uh, Mother Teresa, St. Teresa soon. But you know what I'm saying. You're, what you're saying is one of your favorite records was The Singing Nun. Well, right here in our stage. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Belgian singing nun, Sister Serere. <laughs> well, I'm never going to forget it, and neither should you. On, or the the never to be forgotten teaming on our right here on our stage of Sammy Davis Jr. and Ella Fitzgerald, or the Abratsov puppets. But yes, Belgian singing <laughs> nun Sister Serere was was giant. It was all about the habit, the hats, and and all A that. change of habit. And of course, I thought she was singing Dominatrix, not Dominica, and so I was well into that. Um, so yeah, it you was, were three. Let's not judge. He was a sick puppy even then. Let's not judge. So I am as my God made me. So uh, yes. sick. But but <laughs> getting back to the subject, another thing for me listening to Beatles is it's a kind of form of meditation, not in terms of emptying the mind, but in terms of shutting everything else out and being just totally focused on that and being immersed in that music or you know whatever it is I'm listening to with them. Actually, even if I'm watching something with them for that for that time period, I'm I can shut everything else out shut out the world, daily yes. issues, worries, whatever it is. And it is, it's like a form of meditation. It's incredibly it relaxing and calming and uplifting. Well, so, uh, you know, how yeah. bad can it be? I also love the fact that, you know, years ago I could write about Beatles and share that with however many people. And now there's the ability to do it through the show. There's the what ability. Show? You have to remember it, Eric. <laughs> Swigging through the 60s. Swigging, swigging through swigging. the 60s and being, you know, doing videos and yeah. and all that stuff. It, it's just so much fun, you know, that you can kind of carve the cake many ways, you know. And that's the thing with the Beatles as well, right? In terms of doing shows on the Beatles or writing about the Beatles, you can just keep exploring and exploring and exploring. And there are so many different facets. I mean, it's almost, in, it's not infinite but it's kind of getting there, you know. Well, in a world that amazing. desperately needs so much more joy and so much more inspiration in a positive sense. Something I've always mentioned that I loved was back in, I don't know if it was the 80s or the 90s, still living in London, and I had to go to the West End for some work, and I parked in Soho Square. And MPL. when I get out of the car, I see a crowd somewhere, and then I see Paul's blue Mercedes with the MPL license plate and there's Paul I see him there and there are some you know fans around him and photos you saw and him autographs. standing there. 
So I'm standing there exactly. But what was great was I looked around the square a bit and everyone's looking out the office windows and everyone's got a smile on their face. And that's when, you know, it hit me. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, I don't care what the motivations are. You know, it's the result. Absolutely. And the, the effect, the cause and effect. And it's like the joy it's brought and brings and will bring, which is absolutely inestimable, right? It's just, that is virtually infinite. And it just can't be discounted. Yeah, like Mark said, they're, they're guys. They're four guys. Yeah. Okay, four people, um, but the effect of Effects, what they've had, it's, it's amazing. It's just incredible. Mark, you know these, I, I would kind of defer to you as you've done so much research, you've talked to so many people, maybe you're the most qualified of the three of us to answer this question. I think every once in a while, what would Lennon think for almost 40 years on from his death at this continuing interest in the Beatles, the positivity of it. I can kind of guess, I think, almost 20 years on from John, uh, George being gone. But what, what do you think Lennon would have thought of all this at this oh, stage? I don't know. Um, it's the first thing. And the second thing would be, I, uh, if, if he was still of the same mind that he was in all the years that we knew him, he would be pleased. Yeah. He'd be very, very pleased. And... Um, we keep coming back to the White Album. I've had the opportunity to hear the 5.1 mix of Revolution 9. And in fact, I heard it three times in short succession. And I stood in the middle of the room. I, I did also walk around the room and stick my head inside the five speakers um, to hear different things, but staying in the middle of the room. And while this extraordinary track washed over my head and around my torso and between my legs and whooshed over my ears and... I just thought, God, if John Lennon was alive to hear this, he would absolutely love it. So um, I think he would be, as as we know he was, he would be deeply proud of what they had achieved. You know, I'm trying to think if Paul or Ringo was listening to this, what would they make of what we were saying? I hope they would take away from it the essence of the message for me, which is that by not being anything other than what they were, they lasted so much longer than by trying hard. Um, they were, were hard workers, but they weren't trying to be something. So um, that's the ultimate, the message for me. And and as for people standing in Soho Square, and of course I witnessed it with my own eyes as well, Paul's popularity did not was not diminished by being in jail in Japan, and it was not diminished by turning out a film that a lot of people wondered thought was risible, which was Broad Street and so on. They're, they are still the same as they was before they was to this day you could actually you would want to wave at them still if they turned up today and um it doesn't matter about number ones or number tens or number twenties or box office figures or anything like that and it's, it's why george harrison is as important as paul mccartney even though he's not out touring anymore because he's somewhere else or john lennon for that matter those years their time together which was never quite the same when they were apart is really what it's about for me Close your eyes and I'll kiss you Tomorrow I'll miss you Remember I'll always be true And then while I'm away I'll ride home every day And I'll send all my loving to you 
Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow. seen much of Dallas, uh, the part of it you have seen, what do you like? Well, pretty fine. Uh, did, you get pretty fine. did you get to see the presidential site? We, um, no, we've, the only bit we've seen so far is the hotel. What kind of girls do you prefer? My wife. Your wife. What That's kind it. of girl is she? She's a nice girl. Nice girl. Is this? Ringo, when you, when you marry, what kind of girl are you going to? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't sorted one out yet. I like them all. What kind of girl do you like? Uh, John's wife. John's wife told you not to. That's a clown. <laughs> Nobody likes a smart, Ali. No, uh, 